Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. This episode we're headed to Cornwall for a tale spanning generations. We're just going to jump straight in to the Enchanter of Pengesic. The storms ravaged the coast that night. Waves crashed onto craggy cliffs and sandy beaches. The winds howled and the thunder boomed. Lightning forked across the sky. The rains battered down and the good people huddled around their fireplaces glad to be out of that wild tempest. Little drops of rain fizzled and hissed as they landed on those fires. But down the chimney and through the cracks of the doors, something else crept into the houses. A distinct scent which, quite incongruously, put one in mind of hot climates. A heady mix of spices and incense, as though from some bustling bazaar, an age away from the harsh chill of this rain-soaked Cornish winter. And in the villages and towns around the castle of Pengesic, there came a sound. A sound that improbably carried over the roar of the storms. For miles around, all could hear it. It was the sound of a man's voice reading words in a foreign tongue. Sometimes intoning solemnly, sometimes shouting, sometimes dying away to a faint whisper that nevertheless still seemed to reach every ear. But far worse than this were the other sounds, a cacophony of bellowing, grunts and chittering that echoed around the land. While the first voice was clearly human, speaking some unknown language, those shrieks of reply were truly unearthly, and who or what the things might be that replied was too hideous to contemplate. Gradually the noises got louder and louder. What might have been a conversation now sounded distinctly like a heated argument, threatening to reach boiling point. Even those unwilling listeners who had been trying to ignore the noises now find themselves waiting breathlessly as the unintelligible verbal battle drowned out the noises of the storm. The volume and speed increased and increased and it all seemed to be reaching a great crescendo. And just as it was on the cusp of doing so, another sound rang out. A single crystal clear note followed by a shimmering glissando. The voices ceased instantly, cut off mid-snarl. The sounds of the wind and rain could briefly be made out again, before the distant harp started up and a soft, sweet, calming melody filled every home. People looked at their family and friends with relief, and all made their way to bed, accompanied by the beautiful music of the harp. If they had been able to see out into the gloomy night, and if they had possessed faculties for seeing beyond the usual, then they would have witnessed the rapid flight of a moaning mass of misshapen monstrosities, fleeing from prey sand towards land's end and then disappearing into the air and sea. When they ventured out next morning, the people looked to Pengesic Castle. All was still and quiet, though those close by could hear the sound of a woman singing from some high tower, accompanied by a harp, both at quite usual volumes. 
and so past a reasonably typical Tuesday night in the vicinity of Pengazic. This was kind of the way things were around here now. Now, it hadn't always been this way, and many people alive could remember the times it wasn't. But now, they were used to it. This was Cornwall, after all. Cornwall, which has a fairly robust claim to be the most magical and fantastical place in England, if not the whole of the British Isles. Objection, I hear you cry, thinking of some place dear to your heart, where you remember the mystery and magic of local tales, coupled with your own nostalgia. And yes, there are a lot of legends across England. This podcast concerns itself with quite a lot of them. And other places may have a ghost that someone saw one time, or a dragon that terrorised the countryside, its teeth still turning up in the rocks. And there's things that happen at the Stone Circle, isn't there? Very mysterious. All of which might cause people filled with local pride to claim the preeminent magical status of their little piece of this country. Meanwhile, at this time in Cornwall, mermaids could be seen congregating in the coastal waters. Giants took day trips from their home on St Michael's Mount to stride across the landscape. Covens of witches could regularly be seen flying through the air, and a recent census revealed that a full one in ten inhabitants of the county were people who had been staggering home after a long evening in a tavern, met some piskies, and woken up a century or so later, everyone they knew having passed on, apart from one old woman who remembered the story of a missing boy from their youth. There was even a standard pamphlet for such arrivals, including helpful advice such as the year, name of the king, and which common day expressions from previous centuries were now slang terms for genitalia. And the enchanter of Pengesic and his harp playing bride from the east, we had another patch on the quilt of myth and magic that covered the land. Now I'm not saying that the people were totally used to such unusual things. Even in a place teeming with magic, most people were no more able to use it than, as say, a modern day podcaster would be able to build a working laptop from scratch. But one of humanity's most impressive skills is the ability to take the truly marvellous and incredible, and, having achieved a modest modicum of familiarity with them, reduce those marvels to the most dull and humdrum. Take the experience of flight, for instance. The dream of thinkers, philosophers, poets, poor and rich alike, throughout the centuries. It's now been reduced to complaints about parking prices, how bad the middle seats are, and the size of the carry-on luggage. Such was it about the activities of the Enchanter. It didn't stop the gossip, of course. One farmer might idly chat to another about the things she'd heard the previous night. A pine that maybe this time he'd gone too far. Wonder where exactly his mysterious wife came from. Repeat the rumour that the horse the Enchanter rode had once had a more unearthly master. But they'd agree in the end that at least he kept the giants down, and there'd certainly been a lot more money around since his wife had come to town, and he was a damn sight better than his dad, and no mistake. So, how did it come to this? Well, the answer to that involves a complex story spanning decades with numerous characters, an almost uncomfortably large array of different tropes, generational intrigue, and all the makings of an international political thriller, and a slightly unconventional soap opera. Don't be alarmed, there will be two episodes and regular recaps throughout. Now, the story of the Enchanter of Pengesic is not your average fairy story or folktale. It's fairly long and involved, and has hints of almost being Shakespearean in scope. 
It could almost do with one of those introductions for the characters that sometimes appear before scripts. You know, the Enchanter of Pengazit Castle, colon, an Enchanter, that kind of thing. Well, our story begins a few decades before the events I've just recounted. Our key cast members for the moment include the Lord of Pengazic, a young Cornish lord on his gap year, the Princess, a young princess betrothed to a prince, looking for something more in life, the Prince, a young prince betrothed to a princess who he's politely holding captive until their marriage. The scene opens in a country somewhere in what we'd now call the Middle East. Date-wise, we're at an inexact medievalish time period, so the Islamic world is sophisticated and powerful, certainly when compared to Europe. It's educated, multicultural, highly prosperous, at the centre of vast trade networks connecting China, Europe and Africa. These lands are the bustling hub at the beating heart of humanity, and our Lord of Cornwall has travelled many miles to be here. He's not seeking his fortune or anything like that. He's already rich, heir to a castle and lands. A small to middling fortune by Islamic standards, perhaps, but still hardly struggling. Now, he's here because, like many of the wealthiest people throughout history, he's hit his teenage years and found himself bored, bored, bored with all that luxury. And like many nobles, he's decided to address these problems by taking up travel. Travel and violence. His father had been a soldier, as had his father before him. But Cornwall was disappointingly war-free at the moment, so he'd had to take to foreign parts to get his traditional family fix. And so, he had come here. To... Right, quick aside here, if I may. The country he has come to is never named in any sources for this story. It's all some distant pagan land. Or even better, and I quote directly here, one of those outlandish countries to the east. Yeah, I know, right? Now, that gets trying after a while, so for ease of narrative, I'd like to give it a name. Now, I could use a real medieval Middle Eastern kingdom, but that might be misleading. So instead, from now on, I'm going to call the country Agrabah which probably gives it the correct kind of vibe the author was going for. Though having said that, it's definitely not that Agrabah. And the princess is definitely not that princess. Perhaps this was actually more confusing. Anyway, we're going for it. So, our young lord is in Agrabah, fighting. He's a mercenary. A reasonably high-ranked mercenary, probably. That noble education didn't go to waste. But still, a mercenary. Sometimes he'd fight for the people of the cities against the nomadic tribes. Sometimes he'd fight for the nomadic tribes, trying to get the real 360 on the fighting lifestyle he was. It was during this time that he met the princess. I don't know how. I don't really understand the interactions between medieval mercenaries and their employers. Maybe he was on guard. Perhaps mercenaries got invited to fancy balls. No idea. But she met him. He met her and they fell for each other in that overpowering, intense, heady, first love kind of way. Thoughts of almost anything but each other were impossible, and they longed to be together. But there was the prince. The prince, who with the princess's father had conspired to have her concealed away until their marriage. But as they say, life finds a way. 
And as with electric fences at a super advanced theme park on a private island off the coast of Costa Rica, the barriers that the prince put in place around the princess were quite insufficient to their task. And so, for many nights, the young Lord Pengesic and the princess enjoyed each other's company. But over time, the danger from the prince grew, and eventually the possibility of being discovered became too great. The fighting had died down for the moment, and the young Lord Pengesic decided to return to Cornwall. The plan was that he would go back, make some preparations, and then, after a small amount of time, return, rescue the princess, and take her back to Cornwall to be his bride. At least that was the plan as far as she was concerned. He was perhaps not so closely invested in it. On their last night together, the princess took off the ring she wore on her finger and split it in two. One half she kept, the other half she presented to her lover. Remember me with this, and promise that you'll not wed in the next seven years, unless it is to me. After that time, if we are not reunited, we may seek a different path. But I pray it will not be so. I solemnly swear to wed no other, said Pengesic, solemnly and to return here to you, my love. The deed done, they said their tearful goodbyes, and Pengesic set off from Agrabah to take the long journey home to Cornwall, leaving his promised future bride behind him. The journey back to England was uneventful. Lord Pengesic settled in well, and after a year or so, he had married a fine young woman from Helston, a town about five miles down the road. It was just more convenient that way. His wife, like the princess, is unnamed, and she doesn't even have a title. But whoever she was, she didn't deserve to be married to the Lord of Pengesic. Now I told you this story covers a fair old time period, and so a year or two passes by. Our poor unnamed wife has not yet had a baby. This was somewhat disappointing for Pengesic, and for his wife as well, as unfortunate as it may be, producing offspring was pretty much her one job. This being Cornwall, ships carrying sailors and merchants were coming and going from the various coastal towns all around, and so international news arrived fast. It was said that there were wars again out east. Pengesic considered. Cornwall, his possibly barren bride, those damnable giants... None of it was really working. And he remembered the half a ring he had lost down the back of a sofa and of the happier times of a few years ago when he'd been alternately killing and bedding foreigners. Business trip, dear, he announced one day. But you don't have a business. You just kind of lord it. Did I say business? I meant golf weekend. Uh, Should be back in a few months. Don't wait up. And with that, the Lord of Pengesic left his unnamed wife behind him and set sail to resume the life of adventure he had set aside just a few years before. When he arrived at Agrabah, he found the place in chaos. There had always been warfare, of course, else he would never have come here in the first place. But right now, the country was in the midst of a bloody civil war. Pengesic got the gossip as he neared. Apparently, the old sultan had passed on. What had been meant to happen was that his daughter was meant to marry some prince, and that prince would become the new sultan. But the marriage hadn't actually gone ahead. 
it turned out that the prince hadn't made himself all too popular. I'd like to think that was because of ineptly imprisoning the princess, but it was probably political intrigue that had nothing to do with that. But nevertheless, the princess had decided that, instead of meekly getting married and giving her kingdom to her betrothed, she'd gather together supporters, declare herself sultana, and generally be in charge of everything now. This was her country. The prince, for his part, was, to put it mildly, a little disappointed in this decision. And so he had brought his own army to town. And now, there was war. Oh, and apparently, the princess still hadn't married. As he approached, Pengesic considered this information, ran his fingers over his retrieved half a ring, pondered. Could the princess, now Sultana, still hold a candle for him? Was it possible? And if so, well, rising from being a minor noble from a soggy giant-infested backwater to becoming king of an entire cosmopolitan country, in the warmth, this didn't sound altogether too bad. Maybe a little to his surprise, and certainly to mine, the ex-princess, now current sultana, was still waiting for him, was still in love with him, was ecstatic to see him, and the two emphatically renewed their union, but this time without all the secrecy. There was, of course, the little matter of the war to be won, but with her armies and Pengesic's military capability, formed over a few short years, they were sure to be fine. Well... They were because the Queen had a secret weapon. Quite literally. The Sultana and her most trusted advisers, probably including a scheming Grand Vizier, because that's just appropriate, presented Pengesic with the weapon when generalship was given to him. It was a sword. Her father's sword. And not just any heirloom sword, this. No, this was an honest-to-goodness magic sword. It shined with an unnatural brightness, and the air around it shimmered. This, my darling, this sword has been in my family for generations, forged by the most skilled craftsmen and firmaturgists of generations past. It will cut down any who stand in your way. It will keep the man who wields it safe from all harm. I give it to you, Lord Pengesic, my exotic foreign husband-to-be. Take it with you when you ride into battle and our enemy's defeat is certain. Preparations were made, plans drawn up, armies arrayed. There wasn't enough time, really, but Pengesic had the sword, the support of the Sultana and her many followers, and of course, his family's many centuries' experience of warfare passed on to him from his earliest days. day came. Pengesic and the Sultana jointly led their forces into the battle. Many stories will be told of that day. Great deeds were done. Many lost their lives. But in the end, magic soared with them. Pengesic and the Sultana were roundly defeated and their armies routed. The two were separated in the confusion. It had all happened so fast, 
For a long time it had looked like it could go either way, but then everything had collapsed all at once. However wonderful your sword, it could only defend one man at a time. Pengesic fled the field, the princess lost. Racked with fear for the person he cared about most of all in the world, Lord Pengesic took decisive action to keep that person safe. And so, he fled as fast as he could, taking the magic sword with him. And in no time at all, he was on a boat, headed back to Cornwall. Did he feel guilt for the sultana he left behind? Did he feel any guilt for his actual wife, who he tried to leave behind, but now seemed to be heading back to? You know what, gentle listener? I don't believe the Lord of Pengesic gave a tuppenny damn about either of them. For the Lord, he really wasn't a very nice man at all. Cornwall's verdant shores awaited him, and a short stroll from the sea his ancestral castle waited. Sure, it was no magnificent eastern palace, but it was his, and he didn't have to fight anyone to keep it. Plus, he now had a pretty nifty magic sword that would come in handy in duels. He'd go on to fight a few of those in the next few weeks, and got quite a reputation. His return to the castle after so many months away was greeted with some surprise by his servants and his unnamed wife. And unnamed wife had a surprise for Lord Pengesic. We have a child, said the Lord, within minutes of setting foot in his home. Yes, replied she. But why didn't you tell me? You know, I wouldn't have left for that... Business, merchant stuff, I did. I bought this sword. Good merchant businessing. Look, that doesn't matter. Why didn't you let me know about the baby? Unnamed wife thought about the date on which her husband had returned. The date he had left. Considered how much her husband understood about the details of pregnancy. Did some quick calculations. Well, I know how much you wanted a child, so I didn't want to get your hopes up in case it didn't come to pass, you know. She gave a half-smile. But he did, and we have a lovely son now. With not a trace of suspicion in his mind, Lord Pengesic returned the smile. That we do. What wonderful news. And he kissed his wife and took his son from her, and held him in his arms. Cuckooed at him. Goo-goo-gaga. Because, though he was a monster of a man, he loved this son who he probably imagined would grow up to continue the important work of the male members of the family. Arrogance, violence, and general bastardry. And certainly on that last point, his son was already well ahead of the curve. So, for a very short while, Pengesic was kind of happy with a son and a wife, and winning duels with his magic sword. But it wasn't to last. It was one of those dark evenings in which the events of stories are wont to occur. A servant came to Lord Pengesic just as he was sitting down for dinner. A lady at the gate asking for you, sir. Back in a moment, dear, said Lord Pengesic, and he left the dining room and took towards the grand castle entrance. There he found, to his intense dismay, the former Queen of Agrabah, who was now just a regular person whose life had really not gone to plan. In the days after the war was lost, she'd searched for her general, her lover, her husband-to-be. She still had many allies in her kingdom who would hide her away, at least for a time. 
In her time in hiding, she'd heard that Pengesic had been seen leaving on a ship. She'd of course assumed that he hadn't been able to find her, and that he had returned to his erstwhile home sadly, regret in his heart. With the new sultan's forces scouring the land for her, her lover gone, and most of all, with the changes her body was now experiencing, the former queen decided that her best option, heart-wrenching though it may be, would be to leave her land behind her, find the whereabouts of Lord Pengesic, and try to build a life in a foreign land with him. It wasn't difficult for her to find a loyal crew who would take her away, or to convince them to go that way, for tin from Devon and Cornwall was often shipped to Agrabah, in return for tiny amounts of spices and jewels. The captain of the ship was an old ally of her family, and he saw it as his duty to help in her escape. So they set sail to the west, for the distant cold seas of England. And a few days into the voyage, the captain unexpectedly found himself acting as midwife. And there on the high seas, the son of Pengesic, heir to the throne of Agrabah, drew his first breath. It was a few days after that tremendous event that the Sultana found herself at Pengesic's door. But how did you find me? asked Pengesic to the woman, clutching her baby to her breast. There's no Google, no phone book. Hell, we don't even have a postcode system yet. My darling, your name is literally the name of the place where you live. It didn't take a lot of figuring out. And now I'm here, my dear. Will you take me in? Um, gonna be a pass on that one, I'm afraid. Confusion came over her face. But don't you understand? This is our son. Already got one, thanks. I've, I've travelled thousands of miles for you, my love. Why would you possibly not let me in? What's happened to you? Aware of the proximity to the castle and the ears of the servants, Pengazik decided to break his promise to his wife about returning promptly to dinner. Look, why don't we take a walk down to the cliffs, just over there, away from the door? What, what's wrong with you? said the former queen, as she was led to the cliff tops. Majestic, isn't it? said the lord of Pengazik, ignoring her, looking out over the rough, dark sea. A little way from the coast, the boat the sultana had arrived on was moored, her people waiting there for news of her happy reunion. An icy cold dread began to run its fingers through the queen's body. She was here in this pagan land, and standing with her seemed to be not her ardent lover and ally, but a stranger. So much changed. As he spoke about why she must leave, she was awash with a realisation of how she had been duped. And had she been another, fear might have overtaken her then. She might have fled. She might have survived. But she was used to rule, used to power, used to being in charge. And so, as the revelation of her betrayal became evident, the cold dread turned to a burning, hot fury that shot through her veins, and she turned to Lord Pengesic, full of rage. I came here for you, but you are not the man I thought I knew. You are a pathetic, low-life coward. Here you have some mistress you call wife, and you spurn me and your own son. You cannot deal with your defeat, and I shall have no more to do with you. But before I go, you shall return to me that which hangs by your side, the sword of my father, of my land. That is mine, and you have taken it. I shall take it back before I go. 
and I make you a solemn promise. At this she raised her free hand to the night sky, and the Lord knew that some low magic was being done. In her own tongue she continued, You shall flourish no longer. Evil and bad luck will be your constant companions until the sorrowful day that you depart this world for the warmer climes of hell. But Pengesic, Pengesic still had the sword. Be gone, you mad woman. I'm keeping the sword and my life here, and you are the one going to hell, Saracen whore. And with that, the furious lord of Pengesic took up into his arms the body of the woman he had professed to love, his child with her, and he tossed mother and baby from the clifftops. The captain and the crew awaited the return of their queen, and returned she did, but not in the way they had expected. Somehow the sea brought her body to their ship. Though she was very much dead, her child miraculously slept in the arms of the corpse. They fished her out of the briny waves. The captain took the baby, and he held the boy close. He looked up at the dark cliffs, at the bright lights of the castle, shining malevolently in the night. The crew wept. The civil war was truly over now, the last hope torn away on this savage foreign shore. The ship turned, left England, set sail for the east. The Sultana's bones will be laid to rest on her native soil. Her son, heir to a kingdom, was to be raised by the sea captain as though his own child. And so, probably, no more would ever be seen of him. I mean, really, what's the chances of an unknown heir raised by commoners reclaiming their birthright? Apart, of course, that is, from the little stated but universally recognised fact that in most essentially male preference primogeniture-based monarchies, being raised secretly by commoners is actually a better claim to the throne than merely being the firstborn son. Though it's only the second most legitimate claim to the throne, being raised secretly by animals being the ultimate trump card. So yeah, he's probably never going to crop up again. Back we go to the castle of the dreadful Lord Pengesic, whose love for his son I might have overstated somewhat before. As, if it were the wrong son, turns out he'd perfectly happily send him to a watery grave. Now it'd be good to say that he was haunted by guilt for the terrible murder of his long-term lover and his own flesh-and-blood child, but that was not the kind of man he was. In fact... He returned calmly to a late dinner, heated it up in the pre-modern equivalent of the microwave, which is an oven, I know, and gone to a sound sleep. And the next morning he awoke perfectly refreshed. His past could no longer hurt him, and it was a beautiful sunny day, not a cloud in the sky. The blue of the ocean and the green of the land was almost Mediterranean, and it made Pengesic genuinely appreciate his homeland. What a fine day for a hunt, he thought, because of course Pengesic liked hunting. At this time the land was much wilder, and we aren't talking hunting for foxes or even deer here. No, Pengesic was after wolves. He hunted until darkness fell, chasing the wolves up Dragonig Hill, and as the beautiful blue sky gave way to the twilight, a storm began to pick up, a storm violent and terrible. Pengesic was caught out in the full force of it. He took shelter in a ring of trees, decided that given the darkness and the driving rain, it would be prudent to head back to the warmth and shelter of civilization. 
so he prepared to take his steed back to the castle. As he did so, a sudden flash of lightning illuminated the trees all around him, and to his shock, he saw that under those trees, he was surrounded by beasts, wolves, rabbits, deer and foxes, all cowering at the noise of the thunder, more afraid of this wild storm than of him. And when darkness returned, Pengesic could still see two small glowing eyes. They seemed to be fixed on him. He rubbed his own eyes. But when he looked again, those fiery orange eyes still stared up at him, like hot coals on a fire. There came a flash of lightning again, and for a moment he could see the white hair to whom the eyes belonged. The small creature leapt towards Pengesic. Everything was dark again. And then, then there was chaos. Pengesic's horse reared up and threw him with a great force, and as it did so, animals fled in all directions, howling and bellowing, trampling the fallen lord underfoot. As he passed from consciousness on that accursed hillside, it occurred to him that somehow he recognised the hare. It was no mortal animal, but somehow it was the self-same woman that he had thrown from the cliff the previous night, her spirit transformed. The next day a search party was sent out from the castle to find the young lord, and find him they did, battered, bruised, more dead than alive. They took him back to the castle, and, most unfortunately, he recovered. But on that hillside they never found the sword he had taken with him, the one he always kept by his side, the one that seemed to shimmer and glow. Pengesic had ordered a search for it at once, and as soon as he was well enough he joined in that search himself. But to his great displeasure and to his growing fear, it was nowhere to be found. He had been invulnerable, had got used to that feeling in the months he had the sword, got cocky. Now he could be hurt again. Adding to his woes, every time he left the castle, that damnable hair was there, great and white and seeking revenge. He'd never go out the castle again, here he was, haunted by a phantom hare, stripped of his magical protection. Why does it always happen to the best people? Now some places, this sequence of events might have been enough to put Lord Pengesic to his end. But this, this was Cornwall. Things were done differently here. You see, they'd got used to this sort of thing. Vengeful spirits were not exactly unknown, and the church took a dim view of them, however justified their motivations might be. And Pengesic's mountain of money also helped to get the ecclesiastical authorities' attention. And so he got his own personal priest bodyguard and a small elite force of exorcists. I hope we'll find other times to go into the unusual details of British ghost laying. But let's just say that these men knew what they were doing and were at the very height of their craft. They ate supernatural horrors for breakfast. Count Jocular wouldn't have stood a chance. Now it was over to them. The tooled-up group of special ops god-botherers tracked down the hare, took out the medieval proton packs, and prepared for a fight. And a spectacular fight commenced. (laughs) 
Soon the hair had changed, and now the ghostly apparition of the former Sultana floated above them, eyes blazing. This wasn't meant to happen. You may have power over the spirits of your people, who your church raises from cradle to grave, but I come not from these shores, and I do not bow to your god. You have no power over me. Now far be it from me to claim that the recently deceased Sultana may have been overplaying her hand, but she did quickly add to her boastful speech. You want me to leave him alone? Well, I shall. But I do this not for you, but for my own amusement. I will leave this place, but not forever. For I will return when my son steps onto these foreign shores. Until then, let that bastard live out his miserable years, ever fearing my return. And believe me, I shall return. And with that she vanished into the air, like the smoke that rises from a snuffed out candle. Is that a win, father? Let's call it a draw. None of these events made Pengesic a happy man, and though the hare was gone, he lost any desire to go outside his castle. Instead, he roamed its corridors and rooms, raging at the unfairness of it all. And I'm very sorry to have to report that a few short weeks after he was thrown from his horse, unnamed wife sadly passed away. Directly by his hand? I don't know. But unfortunately, it seems likely. Her short life had been wasted because of the cruelty of this horrible man. That really is a story as old as time itself. They took his son away from him then. There were ways and means, and with his mother dead, the boy would have been unfed, so perhaps that was the excuse. The local miller's wife had just had a child, and she took Pengesic's son into her care. The boy's name was Marek, and the miller's wife raised him as if he were her own, nursing him along with her own son. And now... Time for a quick recap of the events that led us here. Lord Pengesic went abroad to Agrabah. The princess there fell for him, but he left, came back to Cornwall and got married. At this point his sheer awfulness was still not quite apparent. But a few years later he got bored, headed back to Agrabah, where he found his former lover was now head of the country fighting a civil war. They teamed up, he got a kick-ass magic sword, they lost. He fled back to Cornwall, where he found his actual wife had a son now. Great! For about five minutes, everything was fine before the deposed Sultana found herself in Cornwall, along with Pengesic's son. Pengesic at this point turns full on villain, murders the Sultana, and believes he's killed the son, who is actually taken back to Agrabah and raised by a ship captain. The spirit of the murdered woman returns as a ghostly, vengeful hare, nearly kills Pengesic, makes him lose the kick ass sword, is definitely not banished by members of the clergy but disappears anyway, vowing to return one day. Pengesic doubles down on everything that's evil by killing his actual wife in some manner or other, and in response his son is taken away from him to be raised separately. Oh, and somehow this is all going to lead to an enchanter inhabiting the castle at some point. Right, so. 20 years passed. I did say this was a multi-generational story. During these 20 years, Lord Pengesic remained mostly within the boundaries of his castle, rarely venturing out. For despite the apparent banishment of the vengeful spirit, 
the Lord, with no one to love him, his reputation in tatters and his magic sword gone, became a cowardly soul. Only a few servants remained around him, and they mostly did so in order to care for his son and make sure the young Lord would receive good instruction and be cared for in a manner far exceeding what his pathetic father could offer. Together, the servants, the miller and his wife, formed a conspiracy against the Lord and to the benefit of Marek. And so it was that those twenty years were good to the young man. And as with all proper protagonists, he grew strong and skilled in a series of unlikely, unconnected arts. He grew up very close to his foster brother, Ufa, and the two of them were able sailors. By the time they were twenty, they would regularly set out in their boat to help ships in distress, operating an early lifeboat service, sorely needed around the dangerous Cornish coasts. For hobbies, the young Marek took to taming wild horses that roamed the hills, and of course he'd also win all the local sporting competitions, hurling, wrestling, and other games that attracted young men to display their skill. It was a good life, and Marek's reputation as kind, brave, strong, skillful, etc., etc., went a little way to reviving the good name of the Pengesic family. Many looked forward to when he would take over the lordship of the castle. And enter Lady Godolphin. And ladies, gentlemen and others, get your best pantomime hisses and boos lined up for this one. Lady Godolphin took a shine to the young man. She'd seen him at the wrestling and she liked what she saw. She was wealthy, a few years older than him, but close enough. And she felt the young man would be a perfect match for her. A perfect match in terms of an alliance of powerful Cornish families. A perfect match in terms of his castle, which she wished to add to her holdings. And let's not disguise it, a perfect match because of the raw lust she felt towards him. At first, Godolphin made a pass for Marek in the usual manner of the time. Sent him a love letter, or did some discreet signalling with handkerchiefs, or something similar. I'm not massively au fait with the whole thing, to be honest. But something appropriate is the point. But Marek, he wasn't interested. Not only because he was pretty content with hanging around with Ufa, doing sports, rescuing people, animal husbandry, and all the other things in his very busy life, but because, well, he'd heard things about Lady Godolphin. Now, the rumour mill is often unkind to women, especially those who show any degree of independence. There's no smoke without fire is a horribly misleading phrase which has damned many an innocent party over the centuries. Making up nonsense and talking shit about people isn't smoke. But just sometimes, rumours have a little bit of truth to them. And Lady Godolphin was perhaps not the most ethical of people. She didn't take rejection well, even really polite rejection. And she had contacts. This was Cornwall. And her contacts? Well, her contact consisted chiefly of a powerful witch. Lady Godolphin's chief lady-in-waiting, Biffa, was the niece of the Witch of Fradham. And if Lady Godolphin couldn't have the hand of Marek by the power of flirtation, mutual attraction, going on some dates together before developing a healthy, long-term, mutually supportive relationship, well then, there was only one thing for it. Black magic. And so, as Marek saves yet another poor soul from the deadly Cornish waters, he is blissfully unaware that Lady Godolphin, Biffa, and the Witch of Fradham are, at that very moment, brewing spell-infused potions to use against him. Meanwhile, 
in Pengesic Castle, Lord Pengesic was slowly beginning to regain some confidence and was planning a return to public life. And, on an unremarkable ship, making its way to Cornwall, a quite perfectly ordinary young man was going about his duties as a sailor and looking forward to what was sure to be a very regular trading trip. And we'll leave it there today. The story is, as they say, to be continued. Okay, so this is one of those stories where there's so many different angles that I could take. I could probably do a couple of podcast-length episodes on just the discussion. There's the location of the castle and its history. There's Cornwall, which we haven't had a chance to discuss yet on the podcast. And because there's so many different elements of this story, which touch on lots of themes that are present throughout British folklore, there really is everything in this tale. There's exotic foreign lands, witches and enchanters, ghosts and ghost-laying, political intrigue, a magic sword, spurned lovers, murder, wars, a dispossessed heir, and next episode, slight spoilers, there'll be pirates, giants, a brief mention of some mermaids, and more. It really does pull together a load of different elements which we see elsewhere and smushes them together into a single story. So in order to start somewhere, let's start with Cornwall. Somewhat hyperbolically, I covered Cornwall's reputation as a place of legend and magic in the main podcast. And broadly speaking, what I said then holds up. To back up and give an extremely broad overview for anyone not familiar with this area of Britain, Cornwall covers much of the peninsula at the very southwestern tip of Britain. And while it is very much a part of England and has been for over a thousand years, at the same time it has remained culturally distinct in a way peculiar to the county. It's regarded as maintaining far more of its Celtic origins than elsewhere in England. So even though it's not a separate country, it is included in what's called the Six Celtic Nations. That is areas that have some recognisable cultural and linguistic Celtic heritage to this very day. The other five nations are Ireland, Scotland, Brittany, the Isle of Man and Wales. And historically Cornwall was very close culturally to both Wales and Brittany. There is even a Cornish language, which, like Welsh and Breton, is a Brythonic language, and this was the main language of Cornwall up to around the mid-16th century. Though it had entirely disappeared by the 19th century, it's since been revived, and there are a number of modern-day Cornish speakers. This all makes it quite distinct from the rest of England, and gives its folklore and mythology a strong Celtic flavour. The exact meaning of Celtic here is open to interpretation, but it's certainly true that there is a lot of Cornish folklore, not only the magical beings I mentioned at the opening of the episode, but also in the form of the two towering colossi of British folklore that this podcast has so far failed to cover. That is the legends of King Arthur and of Tristram, both of which have strong Cornish connections. So having brought all of that up and given an introduction to Cornwall, When it comes to today's story, well, that Celtic connection isn't particularly relevant at all. The story of the Enchanter comes from a much later tradition. So where does it come from, you might be asking, if you're still interested. And guess where we get this story from, everyone? And here's a clue. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you might just have an inkling. That's right. All together now... 
19th century folklore collectors. In this case, there's two we haven't touched on before. William Bottrell and Robert Hunt. Both of these men were locals to Cornwall and they published extensive volumes on the subject of Cornish folklore. Hunt was very much one of those Victorian Renaissance man types. A poet, a scientist, a statistician, an early enthusiast for photography, all in addition to his folklore collecting. His collecting he did by touring around the county, listening to people tell their stories and writing them down. William Bottrell did similar and provided some stories to Hunt. The story of the Enchanter of Pengesic appears in books by both authors, but in a substantially different format. Hunt's story is far shorter, and perhaps a bit more of the type you might expect in a folk tale, while Bottrell gives the far more protracted and slightly literary version we're about halfway through telling now. Now, these versions from the mid-19th century do appear to be the first written record we have of the Enchanter of Pengesic tale. Bottrell says that he heard it from an elderly gentleman of Gwinea, a village a few miles north of the castle, and that it was related to that gentleman by old folks. Which gives it folk story kudos, but really doesn't date it to anything earlier than the late 18th century. Now it's not really relevant, but I will just want to read to you the very Victorian disclaimer that Bottrell adds before he tells the tale. It contains, however, too many details of dreadful crimes to please general readers. And, as I believe it right to give our old stories unmutilated, so far as a due regard to decorum permits, I hesitated about publishing it, until advised to do so by friends who thought it would interest antiquarian students. That's right, no decorum needed around antiquarian students, they can take it. Also, what a way to butter up your audience. If you're in any doubt as to the authenticity of the tale, I'll refer you to the words of Hunt, referring to the stories collected in general. Quote, While correcting the pages for a new edition, a scientific friend, who was deep in the cold thrall of positivism, called upon me. He noticed the work upon which I was engaged and remarked, I suppose you invented most of these stories. In these days, when our most sacred things are being sneered at, and the poetry of life is being repressed by the prose of a cold infidelity. This remark appears to render it a humiliating necessity to assure my reader that none of the legends in this volume have been invented. They were all of them gathered in their native home more than a half century since. Unquote. Yep, that's right, doubting scientist. And actually, I give this far more credence than I did John Roby's work last episode. The long rambling tale is very much in the tradition of Cornish droll tellers. Now droll in this sense doesn't have any of its dry wit connotations. It just basically means a story told in verse or just as oral prose. And there was a very established tradition of Cornish droll tellers, who were pretty much professional storytellers and poets travelling around from town to town, present up to relatively modern times. Now, while similar performers existed elsewhere, Cornish folklore expert Ronald M. James refers to droll tellers being, quote, encouraged to adapt to the situation, unquote, and that, quote, surviving narratives testify to considerable artistry, unquote. What this means is that, while the droll tellers had to draw on traditional tales, 
they had a greater freedom to modify them in other places, so that Cornwall developed unique local versions of stories. So what we're hearing is definitely a 19th century story, but it also certainly had precedence in general oral history, and many of the themes certainly mirror ones that are found in stories going centuries back, if not necessarily Cornish ones. But when it comes to the story itself, the locations in it are very real. At least the Cornish ones are. I'll talk a little bit about the East and Islam in British legend next episode. But with regard to the Cornish places, well, there is an actual Pengesic castle. It's a stone throw from the village and beach of Prey Sands, which is spelt P-R-A-A. And this name has a supernatural derivation to it, being the Cornish for witch. It's a beautiful beach with white sands and blue waves that attract surfers, as with much of Cornwall. Now, the existing castle is really the remains of a fortified manor house, which was once much bigger. This was built in the 1500s and lived in at that time by the Milliton family. And that castle is not supposed to be the one that features in the story. Rather, the Pengesic Castle of the Enchanter is an earlier build on the same spot inhabited, as per the story, by an actual Pengesic family, who did exist. Who the story is based on is not 100% clear. It's possibly the Militant family, and it's possibly the Pengesic family. We'll touch on it a little bit more next episode as well. Now one thing it would be very remiss of me not to mention is that the existing Pengesic castle has got a reputation as one of the most haunted locations in England which is itself a very haunted country. If this was the main story, I might include a cheeky woo and a rolling thunder sound effect here. There's an episode of the TV series Most Haunted that was filmed at the castle, and it's available on YouTube if you like that kind of thing, but I'll give you an overall impression. The place is jam-packed with ghosts. This is quite a small castle, and it is floating upright room only for these phantoms, It is apparently home to 27 ghosts, 9 in just one bedroom. The ghosts include a dancing girl who lures people to fall off the roof like she did, a demon dog, a black monk, a small boy, a spinning girl, and evil spectres of the greedy former owners. If you want to experience the mass of them for yourself, there are ghost hunting evenings held at the castle, though it sounds less like hunting and more like shooting the things in a barrel. Now, the Enchanter legend doesn't seem to crop up that much in relation to the castle, but it feels like the spooks were worth a mention. Oof, and that's another long episode there. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you for still being with us. Tune in. That's not the right terminology. Download next time, when we'll take up where we left off with more international intrigue and maybe even a character who isn't either awful or dead. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review as those really are the best ways to help us out. 
You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.